So a couple of weeks ago, I'm already kind of emotional this morning. Um, that's, that's probably going to be interesting to see how I get through this sermon. Um, such a touching story. But a couple of weeks ago when I preached, um, it was a story of how the Lord, uh, through Elisha, reached out to a poor woman who needed food. She was starving. And then last week when Andy preached, uh, he started this story of this more wealthy woman from Shunem, um, and her experience of not being able to have a child and the, the challenge of uh, the, the very difficult road of barrenness and then uh, yet being wealthy and having all these resources and deciding with her husband that they're going to, instead of really being um, insular about those resources and investing their lives in and living a comfortable life, they decide they're going to open up their lives and expand their home uh, for Elisha, who really represents to us throughout this passage and throughout his ministry as the ministry of God's word. And so instead of being selfish with the resources God had given them, instead of being angry with the Lord that they couldn't have a child, they instead, the Lord in them produces this generosity. And so they build a a room for Elisha, and through this experience, um, she gets to know Elisha and has this opportunity to be near God's word all the time. God's word is really in their home, and we have to remember, put in the context of everything that's going on in this period of time, there are not many people who are faithful to the Lord in this time. There are not many people who know God's word, who have the experience of of being near God's word, and so it's precious to her that she has this opportunity with Elisha. But going back to that story to remind you, they had come to a place of being content with their barrenness. They had come to a place of being okay with not having a child. But then Elisha gets a a word from the Lord and tells them, actually, since you've built me this room, the Lord has heard your prayers and you're going to have a son. Now she says to him, my Lord, do not lie to your servant. Uh, What that means in the Hebrew is the same thing it means in the English. is like, hey, look, this is a really tender place in our lives. And so I've gotten to the point where um, we're okay. Sorry, I'm having trouble with my mic this morning. Um, We've gotten to where we're okay with this. Um, So... Don't say that unless it's going to happen. And so it does happen, and a year later she has a child. And put another way in this story, the blessing of this child was God's idea. They had come to a place where they were trusting God, and this child was God's idea. And so this blessing from God, you've got to realize that if you are blessed like this from the Lord, out of nowhere, and he gives you what what you've desired and what you've wanted, a child... This son became their world, not, not in a, a bad way, but they, they loved this child, their only child. And so nothing really in the narrative can prepare us for what happens next in the story. It's, it's really inexplicable. When there's a miraculous birth in the Bible, if you think about Hannah in the early part of Samuel, uh, Samuel, she gives birth to a son, Samuel, Um, You think about Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. Whenever God miraculously gives a barren person a child in the Bible, in the scriptures, 
it's always a picture of this greater redemptive hope that he is giving to the world that in spite of impossible circumstances, our God is a God who brings life out of death. And so there's nothing that can really prepare us for what happens next. There's nothing that could have really prepared this woman for what happens next. And that's why this turn in the story is so surprising for us. So today we're going to walk through this extraordinary passage and we're going to observe first the tragedy of death and then we're going to look at what it looks like to run to God's man in our moments of loss and upheaval. And then finally, we're going to see that in the end, the dead are raised for those who trust in Christ. The tragedy of death, what it looks like to run to God's man, in the end, the dead are raised. So first of all, the tragedy of death. So this son is all grown up, and one day he's out with his dad in the fields. He starts feeling poorly, and he suddenly by noon is dead. And if we are unprepared for this turn of events, imagine being the mother. Imagine this moment where this son is given to you by God's prophet. This son is God's idea. How can you imagine, you and I cannot imagine the horror of this moment. Now, for any mother to lose a child, particularly a young child, it is just horrific. It's it's awful. Uh, to lose a child for this mother in these circumstances is really beyond imagination. Like, this is really sheer hell on earth. How does this moment, this, this loss, this death, correspond to what I believe about God? So this crisis of faith emerges. But though the pain of this mother is truly unimaginable, we really can't relate fully to her, what we can relate to is the tragedy of death in general. You know, death is something that is, we experience all the time. Andy just prayed about all of these, these deaths that are happening in the world. And it might be tempting for us to get used to death as if it were something that we see so often that we should just come to terms with. But yet, as followers of Christ, we need to understand that we should not become comfortable with death. Death is not what God intended for this world. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of Genesis 3. Death is a horrible thing. And so when we, as followers of Christ, encounter death, uh, we should not uh, just get used to it or get comfortable with it. It's a tragedy. When we experience loss in our own lives and our own family members, it's, it's like someone that we love is ripped away from us. And, and even if we have we do have hope in the resurrection if this person that, that dies as a believer, it's still something that should never have happened. It's not what God intended for the world. You know, Paul says in Romans seven twenty four, who shall rescue me from this body of death? Now he's talking there about the struggle of, of really uh, his own sin and walking with God, which is another element downstream from the fall. But as we experience either that, that spiritual death and that longing to be made right and whole and holy, or we experience physical death and the ripping apart of someone from us in the world, we cry out, we resonate so much with Paul, who will rescue us from this body of death? You know, as John Milton put it, there's a paradise lost. And when you have that deep longing and that breaking apart from, from what you know should be true, that God, that surely something else was intended. 
not death. Surely there is there's something more that we should long for. It's that longing for another world, not a return to the paradise that's lost, but even a paradise in the future of a new heavens and a new earth of renewal. That longing you have when you encounter death for a different world is, is a longing that points us in the direction of Christ. So the great question is, does death get the final world? word in this story and in the world. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Now, I want you to watch this mother's response. Now, this woman, for zero seconds, believes that she can handle this on her own. She has literally zero seconds in her life where she thinks, you know what? I can get through this if I just reach down deep inside and grab a hold of that that element of the human spirit that can just carry me through to the other side. No. That is, not, that is not a genuine response in a moment like this. She does not say, you've got this. She runs to the Lord. She gives us an example of what we all should do. She runs to God's man, and God's man at the time was Elisha. So this is the second point running to God's man. What does it look like to run to God's man? So like many tragedies, they come at an unforeseen time. These moments of upheaval in life like this are impossible to plan for in the particularities of what will come about in your life. You, you can't plan for something like this to happen. It's a surprise. It's a horrible Surprise. And life is like this, isn't it? All is, you know, someone asks us one day, how are you doing? And you kind of say, all is going well. It's, it's pretty well. We're, we're, we're grateful. And then, you know, a week later, a month later, tragedy strikes. How can you be prepared for tragedies like this? Well, just like we could have never been prepared for the child dying as readers of the story, we were not prepared for that. We're also not prepared to encounter the faith, the faithful response of the mother in this time. Though she could never have known what was going to happen to her child, somehow in her response we see a woman who was prepared, was prepared for this. She was, she was prepared to run to God's man. Now what had she done in her life to be generally prepared to face suffering with faith? What had happened in her life? Well, she had, as I explained at the beginning, she had for years cultivated a life of faith in the Lord. She had walked through barrenness. And I understand from, from talking with women and, and husbands of women who have, have struggled with this, couples who are childless, that this struggle is, is deep, painful. It strikes at the deep identity level oftentimes for couples and, and for women in particular. And she had walked through this with the Lord, and she had reached a place where she was trusting the Lord. She and her husband were not possessive of their home. They made room for the ministry of Elisha. She had placed herself in proximity to Elisha, in proximity to the word of God. I don't know how often she was hearing Elisha, how often they gathered around the table, but she was consistently being exposed to and intentionally being around God's word. When few were faithful in a faithless age to Yahweh, she and her husband had made the center of their life God. 
And she had cultivated a relationship, a community around her that could reinforce that faith in the Lord. She had laid up her treasures in heaven. And where your treasure is, your heart shall be also. And I don't want to minimize this in this woman's life. That it, it was, it's, no, it's, it's surprising that she would respond this way because we see it so seldom. But it's not surprising in light of the trajectory of her life that she had made a life out of centering her heart and her mind on the Lord. This habit of kingdom investment, hiding her soul in the Lord that had happened over decades now pays dividends. And though the situation in 2 Kings 4 is not persecution, I think it's, it has similarities to persecution that, let's say, the Chinese church is experiencing. It's a moment that you can be prepared for. You, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you sense that something very well could happen and so you can prepare yourself on that day. We live in a world right now within the Chinese church, one of the big themes that is being taught on is, is changing our paradigm for what we expect in this world. Do we expect this world to be heaven on earth? One day it will be, but not in this period of time. This world we live in is a wilderness journey. We are journeying still through the wilderness. Yes, Christ has come for us. And he has brought in salvation, but we are not home yet. And in this world, there is suffering, and we should anticipate that suffering. One of the opportunities that we have from the last three years is we have walked through, many of us have walked through a season of suffering of various kinds. And I call it an opportunity because it's an opportunity for us to have known the Lord in the midst of that suffering, to prepare us for the future. Wang Yi, who um, I'll be talking about later today, he's a well-known, uh, I would call him even a famous Chinese pastor who is now in prison for his faith. He wrote an article before he was uh, imprisoned in 2018 called 20 Ways Persecution is God's Way to Shepherd Us. Uh, this is not a title you'll find in your self-help section of Barnes & Noble. Um, before he was arrested and imprisoned, he wrote this. And in it, he says this. One of the great benefits of persecution is we see how much we overestimate our spiritual lives. This miscalculation is where <clears throat> almost all of the daily problems in our spiritual lives come from. If Christ had not been arrested, Peter would not have known. He could not make it, and the disciples would not have admitted their disbelief. Believers who live at ease often misunderstand their piety. It is only when the absolute temperature drops that we realize we are cold and long for the light. When we are threatened for the gospel, we find out for whom we really live. Another way of putting it, when we suffer, we find out, have we been building our lives on sinking sand or have we been building our lives on Christ? Have we been investing our lives for things on earth? Or have we been laying up our treasures in heaven? Sometimes we can find ourselves in moments, self-righteous moments, when we think these thoughts like, wow, I've really become such a God-reliant person right now. I've really grown so much in my ability to trust the Lord. And then something changes circumstantially in our lives and we're thrown, we're thrown and our, 
the ground around us begins to sink and we find out where the foundation of our soul is resting. I want to say that there are times when we respond well and then there are times when we're not. And what Wang Yi points out there about Peter, that Peter on that night, I so often look at that night and I think, you know, what a tragedy that, that Peter responded that way. That's one way to look at it, and that's, that's true. The other way of looking at it is what a gift it was for Peter to know that he was not trusting in Christ. He thought he was. He thought that he had trusted in Christ. He had said to Christ, I'll never deny you, but then he did. But what a mercy to him to find out so that then he could be restored. So that then after going through that temperature dropping to zero, he could realize, I long for Christ in a new and more beautiful and different way. So the striking example of faith in this woman is not about her faith, okay? This is, about the, this is a testimony to the greatness of her God. She had, she testifies to us that there is another way of living. There's a way of living where there's this kingdom of God that exists out there, and you can actually lay hold of that kingdom by faith in a way that actually enables you that when all the storms of life are coming, you can rest in God. He is capable of holding you fast. And if in that moment you are not able to respond in faith, that's a gift to you too because then you can turn to the Lord and cry out. And he sanctifies us through these moments. And so this woman in faith runs to God's man. She actually doesn't run. She rides a donkey as fast as that little donkey will take her to Mount Carmel. And you remember where Mount Carmel is? It's this famous place now. It's called the Mount of God. This is the place where Elijah encountered the prophets of Baal and you know, God just showed up in this, this match of, you know, between him and Baal and just totally eradicated all the prophets and fire came down from heaven. And so this is known to be this place of God's presence. And Elisha being there on Mount Carmel He's probably gotten away. It's like a weekend retreat. He's there. He's, he's spending time with God. He's, he's encountering God. This is Elisha's plan. And him being at Mount Carmel and her going to meet him there um, thematically, because we know what Mount Carmel is, it kind of helps us anticipate maybe God's going to do something here because of even that place in the story. But I want to go back to this woman. What does real faith look like. Because even though she does demonstrate amazing faith to, to run to God's man, this is not a faith that is unemotional. She is not stoic. She is not, I know people in my life that um, would consider themselves great people of faith, but they're not engaged. They're not relationally in it with people. They to, to have faith, they distance themselves from suffering so that they can maintain this, this spiritual, uh, almost like aura about them so they can, they can not be tainted by the hard things that happen in life or they try to. It's impossible. But that's not what she does. She is both faithful and emotional. It says in verse 27 that her soul, Elisha says, her soul is in bitter distress bitter distress. This is striking her at the very heart. Now, what did that distress look like in her? This interaction with Elisha and the woman reminds me of Jesus' interaction with Mary, the sister of Lazarus. 
where when Jesus shows up four days later after Lazarus died, she is in bitter distress, and she says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would still be alive. She's upset, and Jesus weeps with her. This is real faith. This is trying to reconcile real suffering with the goodness of God and the ability of God. How do we do it? We bring ourselves to the Lord. And so here, you can just hear it in her bitter distress. And uh, Elisha, I mean, she, she carried the boy up. I don't know if you noticed it, but to, and laid him on Elisha's bed. Like, Elisha's normally there, right? I mean, this is his home for years. This boy is presumably like maybe like 15-ish so for like 16 years, this has been his home. And he's normally there. And she's like, why are you not here? Why did I have to travel? I don't know how many days it took for her on donkey back to get to him, but it was a while. Okay, so this boy has been dead for a while now. And she's crying out in pain. We made room for you for moments like this. Where are you? right now. My son would still be alive. When we reach that maximum threshold of pain, when temperature drops to zero, and you still cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Jesus did on the cross. When you can still use personal pronouns with God, my God, my God, me, that's what God wants from us. He wants us just to come to him He's our God, our personal God, and we come to him in our pain, and she, she shows us that sincere faith is also a faith that can be bitterly distressed. You are still my God. It feels like hell, but you are still my God. So back to the story, Elisha's on Mount Carmel, but this woman is tenacious, and she, um, she I don't know how to interpret her all as well to her husband, all her well to Gehazi, the servant. Um, I'll just say that she's only content to meet with Elisha. She really doesn't want to recount the story of what's happening to other people. She's only going to meet with him. She's going to get to him. She falls and she grabs hold of his ankles, and Gehazi's like, you're, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You want me to do something about this here? Um, but Elisha's like, no, this is, this is okay. And I want you to see when she's grabbing hold of Elisha that really Elisha, again, represents God's word. He really represents God. And so what she's doing is she is doing everything she can to lay her arms around God and God's word and saying, I will not, I will not give up. I think about um, Jacob in Genesis 32 when he's wrestling the angel we're at the end, he says, I will not go until you bless me. I will not. And she's tenacious in her faith. And so she is not resting in God's sovereignty. She is not managing her expectations. She's not letting go and letting God. None of those things. Listen, when your soul is in bitter distress and someone gives you a truism, and, you know, just let go and let God, or just, you know, you probably should have managed your expectations. Life is hard. Sometimes you lose things you love. I mean, come on. No, that's not what God wants from us. He doesn't want us just to, to parrot back some truism to him. He wants us to come to him for real. 
and really come to him in faith and cry out to him in our utter desperation. So, how do we apply this? Well, first of all, in moments of physical tragedy, you are free and welcome and even encouraged to cry out to the Lord for healing. You should do that. You should. I mean, only the Lord knows and has the ability to, to, to hand out life and death. These things belong to the Lord. And so you should pray. When someone is sick or someone is dying, you are encouraged to pray for their physical healing, and you should. And sometimes the Lord does respond with physical healing. Uh, even in our own congregation, we have seen God work miraculously when we call on him in prayer to reverse what seems like certain peril or death. We have seen the Lord do amazing things. And so you should cry out to him. You should also then cry out to him spiritually. And so we'll walk through this at the end. So we've seen the tragedy of death running to God's man. And so then, ultimately, the dead are raised. And so this woman seeks out Elisha, how will Elisha respond? The dead are raised. So Elisha pastors her here. I mean, so he shows a model of what a good pastor should do. I mean, he had plans. He was away. He had, he had this, this plan of how he's going to spend time with God. That's important. We see that in Jesus' ministry too, how he would consistently try to get away and spend time with the Lord and yet, there were times when those plans did not correspond to where Elisha or Jesus actually needed to spend their time. And so, Elisha responds well, and he says, let's, let's go. Well, she doesn't really give him much of an option. She says, I'm not going to leave your side. And so, she travels back. And there's an interesting interlude here with as they're traveling back, Elisha's like, well, maybe if you take my staff, Gehazi, and lay it on the child's face, maybe God will work that way. But Gehazi meets them on the way back, and he says, that, that didn't work. So, um, all right. So that's an interesting part of the story. And then they continue on. Um, they, they get back finally to, to his room uh, where the child has been laid. And as they go into the room... It's something really interesting here where Elisha goes in by himself and he closes the door behind him. Elisha is alone with the child. This also reminds me of Mark 5, which is my daughter Claire's favorite story when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, where he goes in, and this time he takes Peter, James, and John, and it's like a lesson for them. But he, again, he closes the door in the same way. And I find it really interesting. It's kind of like saying, look, the doctors have done all they can do, and certainly please pursue all of the medical help that you can if you're ever in a situation like this, okay? But there's a point at which the doctors can't do anything. And you, in shutting the door behind them, behind him in this case, it's a way of saying, okay, God, now we're totally reliant on you. I mean, we, we have been, but this is like a symbol of like, only you can work here. And we're trusting in you, God, now to work. So then Elisha prays to the Lord. That's very important, okay? He prays to the Lord. He does not work this miracle on his own. And actually, many of Jesus' miracles, even though Jesus is the Son of God, 
before many of Jesus' miracles, he also prays to his Father in heaven. So prayer is very important. It's also very important because it helps you look away from yourself. There's nothing you can do in this situation, but God can. And so you pray, you pray. And so he prays to the Lord. If the child is raised up, this is only through the power of God. And then he lays on the child, mouth on mouth, hands on hands, eyes on eyes. And so then the child begins to warm up. And so he he kind of takes a break. He does it a second time. Weirdly, the Bible is is kind of weird sometimes. I can't really explain it, but he sneezes seven times. I know that seven is the number of perfection. I don't know why he needed seven sneezes, but this is the way God works. And I, I will say this. Sometimes God works in weird ways. I know Presbyterians don't like to hear that, but he does. Okay, like we have a book of systematic theology but there's one little clause in there that says God can do anything he wants outside of what we can describe in this book. And I often find myself there. I'm like, yeah, this is a good book, but there's a lot of other mysterious things that we really need God to do that we can't write in our systematic theology textbooks. Sneezing seven times would be in there. So he, so he, he, he now, this child is, is raised up. I mean, it's this incredible story of how this child... It, He's raised up, and he gives him back to the mother, and she's obviously overjoyed. And there's some things we can kind of of take away from this. One would be that, interestingly, the, the, the physical restoration of this child happens, but it happens over time. And I find that really an interesting parallel of our spiritual lives, that when you're saved by Christ and he raises you up, you are given new life in him immediately, but the, the full healing that you need to experience from Christ will take time. It will take time. You are really already healed by Christ now, and you are being healed by Christ, and one day in heaven you will be totally healed by Christ. But you're already healed. You're already forgiven. But that restoration process is going to take a little time. I also want you to notice how in this miracle of resurrection that he uses Elisha, his prophet, to be a sort of human mediator. That Elisha, he lays on the child, and it's through Elisha's life, sort of, even though it's only possible through God, that the life comes into this child. That's what we're supposed to see here, is it's a life-for-life thing that is happening here. And even though Elisha is uh, only an imperfect human mediator, and the Lord works in this way, the Lord works through Jesus Christ as our great and ultimate mediator. So for this one child, life comes through Elisha, through God's power to him, but through Christ, through the exchange, through him standing in for us, through him literally laying his life out for us on top of us, his life for our life, we also then gain new life through him. And it's not just one child, it's for anyone who believes in him. You know, Jesus on the cross also wrestles with bitter distress, and yet he has perfect faith. We know that, right? He never sinned. His his faith was perfect, and yet in perfect faith, he can cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can experience a crisis of belief and still have 
faith, a crisis of, of where is my God and my Father in the midst of this moment. Jesus then really died on the cross, and he was really buried. The only son of the Father. Listen, if we thought that the death of this child in 2 Kings 4 was, was unanticipated and really caught us off guard, how about the death of the Son of God? How about the anointed one that's been promised for generations? How about the second person of the Trinity made incarnate, come to save the world, and then suddenly he is taken away? You know, we can think about Peter around the fire that night, but no one was prepared for this, although Jesus had tried to prepare them. No one was prepared for the Son of God doing the things that he did to then willingly subject himself to crucifixion and be ripped out of this world to be buried in a tomb. No one expected that. But also no one expected that Jesus Christ would be raised to life. No one expected that Christ would overcome death, that he would overcome the tragedy of tragedies, the death of God's Son, and open up life for us, for anyone who follows him, who believes in him, to be saved and have eternal life. You know, in our story today, the mother had faith, and through her faith, the son was raised. And though if you're a mother or a father and you have a child who doesn't yet know the Lord, uh, you should pray for them, and in faith, you should run to the Lord often and pray for them. But in, in, in the sense of spiritual life coming to someone, it is only through a person's individual faith that they can be saved. Your mother or your father can't believe for you. If you grew up in a home uh, that's a Christian home, and, and you're like, well, you know, you talk about your story, and, you, and your story is basically, well, I grew up in a Christian home, my parents are Christians, and so I'm a Christian. That may be true, but you need to have had a moment in your life where you have personally trusted Christ for salvation, where you personally said that life-for-life life exchange on the cross, that life-for-life exchange, life, uh, Unity with Christ I have through his empty tomb, his resurrection. That is my life. That is my story. I want you to recognize with me this too. The good news of the gospel here is that even though God sometimes answers prayer for physical healing, and I mean immediate physical healing when we need somebody to be healed right now physically, God sometimes answers that prayer. And that's amazing. But what is more amazing? Because listen to this. this. This boy, let's say he's raised up from the dead. Let's say he never trusts in God for salvation. It's hard to imagine going through this, but let's say he never does. One day, this boy will die again. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first. That would be really awesome. We're all going to die. This child, is, he died. He died physically. But if you are alive in Christ spiritually, if, if God works the miracle of resurrection in you spiritually, then though you will die physically, you will live forever. In fact, when God works miracles of spiritual resurrection in our lives, though it is less marquee, uh, though you can't like have a video about it or write a story in a book about it, and that's what you can but, but it's, it's not as obvious. It's not as, as, as like amazing to our sensibilities. But when God works in, the, in ways to, to bring someone to life spiritually, 
it is actually even more amazing because that is eternal life happening in someone in front of you. And listen to me, the promise of the gospel is this. Even though when we pray, and we pray for, for physical healing, and that sometimes happens, do you realize that when you pray and you ask God to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life, that that prayer is answered 100% of the time. That there's never a time when God listens to that prayer from someone and when someone says, God, forgive me of my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Please give me new spiritual life. There is never a time when God hears that prayer and he says, not right now or not today or it's just not the right time. No, he answers the prayer. Every time someone prays that prayer, I think of, Joe read from Psalm 32 uh, this morning, and um, we didn't plan on this, but at the very end of Psalm 31, which goes into that psalm, David cries out, Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So there is never a situation that you can find yourself in when you do not cry out from the Lord, even to the Lord, even if you feel like you are cut off from his sight. Even if you feel like that you're, you're not sure if he's going to respond to you. The, the, the answer to that question is that God's ultimate man, Jesus, always comes to your aid. He always hears your voice. More explicitly, Romans 10.13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in moments of physical tragedy, you should cry out to the Lord. But how much more motivated should we be to cry out to the Lord for spiritual life in our own hearts and in the hearts of those around us? That God would meet those that we love and bring them into his kingdom. How much more should we be crying out for spiritual resurrections that Jesus would work in those that we love and continue to work in our hearts as well. So what can we take away from this passage today? First of all, you can prepare your soul for tragedy. You can prepare your soul for upheaval. You cannot know what will happen. But in this world with devils filled that threatens to undo us, God has willed his truth through Christ to triumph through us. There is a truth in Christ that can hold us fast in any time that we walk through. And I know that we've walked through so much in these last three years, but I hope that your takeaway from the last three years is not something like, well, I hope that we never have to go through anything like that again. I mean, I do too. But this world is, we're in a wilderness if you anticipate life like, man, I hope that nothing really bad ever happens again until I die, uh, that's, you're not taking account for what the world is really like. But if instead you say, I am going to cultivate a life where I am investing my soul in what really lasts and what lasts for eternity, I'm going to lay up treasures in heaven for there my heart will be also, you will be able to much more in a much more stable fashion than before, to rest in the Lord. You can cultivate that life of faith. And even if in the future you, you then have a Peter-like moment, it's still okay because God is merciful. This is not, not salvation-dependent thing. Here. Like you're, not, you're not being saved to heaven or not being saved based on 
your response and suffering. But you can, by, because of the salvation that you've already received in Christ, you can trust in Christ to walk you through anything that you encounter in life. Listen, the last several years have been so hard for us, so hard for many of us, so hard for the world. But if you from that can also look back and see the ways that the Lord has worked, the way the Lord has sustained you, that he has been faithful to you, that he is good to you, that he is the only one who has been faithful to you. Every other person, even if you love them, even if they're still in your life, every other thing has been jeopardized in some way. It's been hard to walk through it, but the Lord has been faithful to you so you can trust him. The second thing that I want to encourage you in from this is in the tragedies of life, the ups and downs of life, make it your pattern to be someone who runs to God's man. Make it your everyday life pattern that you are someone who runs to Christ, that you are, you are spending time with the Lord. Like she did in her, in her house, she made room for the Lord. As Andy preached about last week, you need to make sure that you're making room in your life for the Lord, not just because it, it, it will lead to blessing in your life, but one of the blessings it will lead to is that you will be near to the Lord when you walk through challenging times. And if you're, you're used to going to God's man in life on a normal day, then on that hardest day, then you'll also run to God's man because it's what you do every day. That's just what you do. You run to Christ. And then finally, the good news of the gospel is this, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you realize that if you trust in Christ, that you are given salvation, that your sins are forgiven, and that you will also be raised up physically in Christ on that final day. For everyone who trusts in Christ spiritually, they will also be raised up physically. Do you realize that? That you can be physically healed in this life, but not trust in Christ and die spiritually and, and you're eternally lost. But if you're raised spiritually in Christ, then you will be raised physically. That's the hope. That's the hope of the gospel. When you're at that funeral of that loved one, the hope of the gospel is this for them if they're in Christ. They're, they are spiritually with the Lord now and their physical body is now healed and with the Lord forever. And so we trust and we believe in the gospel that there is both a spiritual and a physical resurrection for all who are united with him by faith. So may the upheavals that we experience in life get us into a life pattern where we are running to God's man, where we are investing our life in the eternal kingdom of God so that as we experience Christ every day and on those hardest of days, we are being prepared for the glory that awaits us, the glory of one day all things being made new. That is real. That is the hope of Wang Yi in prison. That is the hope of the Chinese church the hope is not in this life. The hope is in the life that is to come. And so in this life, because we're so sure of Christ in the future, we're so sure of Christ in the past, we anchor our hope in him on this day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for holding us fast in the midst of the 
trials of our lives. And though we at times have wavered in our faith and at times we have been faithful um, along the way, Lord, we're thankful that in all of this that you are our God and you hold us fast. Father, I pray that we would be those who run to you, not just on the hardest of days, but on on every day, uh, that we would make it our life pattern, our path to be someone who depends upon you. Lord, we thank you that you bring us life, real new spiritual life, life that transforms our lives. And I pray, Father, that as we experience that, that spiritual new life in Christ, that we will also know for sure that one day we will experience that physical restoration of our bodies and, and of all things, Father. So I do pray that uh, we would anchor our hope in you and that we would learn how faithful and how good you are, that your love for us never fails, that you do indeed raise the dead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.